0: Some of you may have noticed that in terms of time frames of Jesus's life, our sermon series really slowed down when we got to Lent. Most of the sermons since the start of Lent have covered literally just a handful of hours. From sundown on Thursday into the later evening that same day, the last day of Jesus's life. We're following John's lead in this, in focusing so much on such a short period of time, because John finds tremendous significance in everything Jesus said and did on this last day of his life. This morning, in our scripture, we've arrived at the arrest of Jesus. Jesus. Uh, Judas, as we heard, had gone out earlier in the evening after the supper and betrayed Jesus to the authorities. Uh, Jesus and the eleven disciples then had uh, walked out into the dark night and gone to a spot that Judas knew they would probably go to. And as I read, the guards found them, arrested Jesus, bound him, and took him to be tried and sentenced. As I said, I'm not going to read about everything that happened next, but I do wanna sketch a little bit as that's important. The first person we heard, the first person uh, to whom Jesus was brought and put in front of was the high priest Anas. He was essentially a retired high priest, but he was clearly still the power behind the religious authorities or Jesus would not have been taken to him first. Anas asks Jesus about his teaching, and he's trying to get Jesus to say something that will be incriminating. Jesus doesn't play along, and he says, if you want to know about my teaching, ask my disciples. When he says that with the way he said it, one of the guards slaps him across the face. And Jesus says, if I've said anything wrong, tell me what I've said wrong. And if I haven't said anything wrong, then why did you slap me? But we don't get an answer. Next, Jesus is taken to the official high priest of the time, who was actually the son-in-law of Anas. So we see how things don't change over the <clears throat> millennia. Um, the official high priest was Caiaphas. John doesn't actually record anything of what happened between Jesus and Caiaphas, but he does record that through the time that Jesus was there, Peter denies that he knew Jesus three different times. John doesn't actually spend much time uh, on Peter's denials, but he wants it, recorded for something that happens later. He just wants it recorded that it happened. Finally, Jesus is taken before the most powerful Roman official in the region, Pontius Pilate. So a little context for this, his presence before Pilate. Uh, the Jewish religious officials of the time wanted Jesus executed, capital punishment. But a few years prior to our story, Rome had taken away the authority for capital punishment from the Jewish leadership. So the religious leaders needed to have Pontius Pilate find Jesus guilty of something that was worthy of execution. The problem was, Pilate found Jesus to be completely innocent. John describes several interviews between Pilate and Jesus, and each time, Pilate goes back to the religious leaders and the crowd and says, I find him guilty of nothing. But the religious leaders and the crowd say to him, essentially, you have to. He has to die. Pilate tries to offer them a deal. He says, each year I release one condemned prisoner. He says, I was going to release Barabbas, who was guilty of murder. How about I release Jesus instead? The crowd says, essentially, no, we'd rather have Barabbas, the murderer, than Jesus. Kill Jesus. Pilate even has Jesus scourged, whipped with a horrible whip, as punishment, to maybe try to calm the crowd or ease the crowd's bloodthirst a little, but it doesn't work. Pilate then, based on what some of the the leadership says, religious leadership says, Pilate becomes increasingly worried that Jesus may somehow actually be the Son of God that the religious leaders were accusing him of claiming to be. I'll read the last little bit of this time. Chapter 19, verses 12 through 16. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but... The crowd kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king. Pilate said to the crowd, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked, we have no king, but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Sadly, this scene has been misinterpreted throughout the history of the Christian church to justify anti-Semitism to the point of uh, torture and and killing. Um, As we've talked about before, for some reason that we don't fully know the reason, uh, or for some reason we don't fully know, John often has this habit of Writing the Jews as if they're one indistinguishable group. So, most of the time, a large group of people does something, John simply writes, The Jews did, etc. Each time that I said the crowd as I was reading through that last little bit, it's literally the way John writes it, the Jews. So, the Jews called out, Kill him. In one sense that is simply an accurate assessment. All of this took place in Jerusalem uh, and in the surrounding areas and the overwhelming uh, masses of human beings in that region at that time were Jewish. So if there's a large group of people gathered together at the time, it's likely that they were all Jewish. But the crowds in John's description are often um, described negatively. And therefore, their religious designation became associated with these negative acts. And here, the negative act is the condemnation of Jesus to execution. On the cross. But to say, as some have grotesquely, that the Jews killed Jesus is to miss the entire point of this story. The crucial designation in this story is between two different kingdoms the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of the world as a whole. It's vital for us to be aware of the multiple powers that are at work in crucifying Jesus. Dale Bruner, whom I've used often as a reference in uh, this series, contemporary biblical scholar, summarizes succinctly this point. He writes, Jesus's counterparts in our chapter are Anas, the emeritus but de facto high priest of the ancient people of God, apparently the most powerful person in Israel religiously, the Roman Pilate, the most powerful person in Palestine politically, and the Passover people of God, the most powerful force socially. All three of those powers are at work against the kingdom of Jesus, political, religious, and social. Altogether, they comprise the kingdom of this world, in John's understanding. The point in this story is that the kingdom of Jesus is... How did I write this? This is odd. The kingdom of Jesus... I I had a brain lapse, apparently, when I wrote this. But Jesus as a king, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way, Jesus as a king and the kingdom he represented was too threatening to the ways of the kingdom of this world. So the kingdom of this world needed to get rid of him, to kill him, to eliminate the threat. The same dynamics are still at work in our world today, and in the United States. The kingdom of Christ threatens the entire power structure of our society. One of the fundamental ways in which this can be seen is the commitment to the way of peace versus the way of violence. The way of Jesus is the way of peace. We heard that in our uh, initial reading in verses 10 and 11. Simon Peter had a sword for some reason. He drew it. He struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The, The cup is not to fight back with violence. It's to accept what happens here. In a later part of what I didn't read, but in verse 36, we hear Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But now my kingdom is from another place. The whole point is that Jesus does not accept the way of violence but instead follows a way of peace. Again, I'll turn to Dale Bruner for helpful uh, commentary on seeing the big picture. He writes, the kingship of Jesus is not to be imposed by the mechanisms of worldly power, nor may it be maintained with the help of those. The king of God's kingdom has no servants who will use weapons to fight for him. In fact, powerlessness, in the earthly human sphere is the nature of this kingdom. This is meant as a statement of principle, but also corresponds to the nonviolence and love of enemies, which the historical Jesus advocated. John has correctly seen that Jesus's renunciation of power is an essential part of his preaching. The rule of God, as Jesus proclaimed it, is the liberating and saving rule of love which utterly rejects any use of force, especially physical. Therefore, it cannot, be, it cannot establish itself by forcible means. Any alliance with force and earthly power is a compromise with the preaching and the will of Jesus. The problem for Jesus in our society is that that way doesn't make for a very profitable business. In the US, we spent in one year, $750 billion on defense, largely weaponry for war. And this year, even Biden is proposing an increase to $813 billion for one year. What we spend in the U.S. on war is more than the next 11 highest countries in the world combined. Even all that China and Russia and England, the next 11 together is less than we spend as one country in one year. And meanwhile, we have crises of all sorts, health care, both physical and mental, homelessness, poverty, and climate. The ethos of the kingdom of Jesus lives in the command, love your neighbor. William Temple, an Anglican bishop in England over a century ago, contrasts Christ's kingdom with the kingdom of this world. The kingdoms which are from this world rest in part upon a falsehood, most conspicuously upon the false but necessary supposition that the state really acts in the interest of the whole community, whereas, in fact, it always acts primarily in the interest of that section of the community which is able to practice which is able in practice to work the state's machinery the kingdom of christ and the kingdom of this world as a whole are not the same the question then becomes for all of us to which kingdom and king are we going to be loyal one of the most disturbing lines in our story, I find to be chapter 19, verse 15. Uh, Here is your king, Pilate said. But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? And they respond, The chief priests respond, We have no king. But Caesar, these were the leaders of the faith who had sold out to the power and comfort to Caesar, to the ways of the world. Even if they didn't believe that Jesus himself was the anointed one, they know that Caesar has claimed divinity for himself, claimed to be the son of God himself. So pledging their loyalty to Caesar was a betrayal of their primary allegiance to the one true God. I find the same disturbing choice being made by many in our country today. Far too many of those in the U.S. who claim to be Christian followers of Christ betray Christ by their actions choosing to follow leaders like Donald Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ted Cruz, is like choosing Barabbas over Jesus. This morning's story confronts us with the question of our loyalty. As Tom Wright sums it up, are we with Pilate, nervously allowing himself to be maneuvered into dangerous compromise? Are we with the chief priests, or as again Dale Bruner says, the senior pastors, pressing home a political advantage without realizing that we are pushing ourselves backwards towards complete capitulation? Or are we with Jesus, continuing to reflect the love of God into this muddled and tragic world? For Christians. We have no king but Jesus. Our loyalty is to him. And all of our decisions must be made through that lens. Amen.